Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today comes from a tiny village in Cambridgeshire, where at school she took an early interest in politics, joining the youth parliament. After university, she got a job in the civil service and worked on several campaigns, from the Scottish referendum to counter-terrorism roles in Syria and Iraq. In 2019, my guest was elected as the Conservative MP for Rutland and Melton, and this year she has been selected as the first female chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in government. Getting there wasn't all plain sailing. She said of her time that her rivals dismissed her as an inexperienced young woman. Now seen as a foreign policy powerhouse, she's carved out a reputation for being hawkish on China and outspoken on the Afghanistan evacuation. My guest today is Alicia Kearns. So Alicia, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. On this podcast, we always begin by asking, was yours a happy childhood? It really was. I was incredibly lucky. My parents had this kind of fairy tale love story, which I actually think is a little bit unfair because it gave some unreal expectations for love. They met in Germany and it was my dad's first day in Germany and my mum's last day in Germany in the 70s. And he flew home with her to England the next day because they were so in love that that was it. Oh my God, what what were they doing when they met? Was it by chance? It was completely by chance. So she was lecturing about Irish politics on her year abroad in Germany. They were both incredibly left-wing. And so people thought that they should meet these two incredibly left-wing-minded and interested in Irish politics people. And love sprang from there. But no, they gave us... They both had very tough upbringings. So giving us everything was all that mattered to them. So we were incredibly lucky. So does that mean if you had incredibly left-wing parents, you talked about politics a lot or you were aware of it growing up? So there was a lot of politics, but not with a kind of, you know, political party hat on it necessarily. So they always wanted to talk about international affairs. They were always watching what was going on. There were a lot of debates about the rights and wrongs. But because my dad grew up in Ireland during the Troubles, he had a very strong view that you should never hate. You could intensely dislike and disagree, but he hated the hatred in politics. And I think it's interesting that I feel that so acutely in the chamber. I really hate the kind of jeering and laughing and... I didn't come to politics because I hate the opposition. I came because I think they're fundamentally not approaching things in the way they should be. So their approach really did shape the way I do things. You were in the UK's youth parliament. Can you fill listeners in on what that is? (laughs) Yeah, so I think it might have been the first year that the youth parliament existed. And essentially, it was one of those things where teachers go, we've had this email and we need people to get involved. And Alicia, because you're politically minded, you should do it. And all I remember from... I've got awful memory, but all I remember from it is going to a big meeting in London, which was very exciting, you know, train to London, and all the Cornish kids raised this massive protest with signs and banners about how they needed Cornish independence. And that's all I really remember from my time in the youth parliament. Was it in parliament when you met? No, no. it wasn't. I don't think it's yet reached those heights. It was kind of like the first year, start it off, see how it goes. I don't think we even met with MPs. You know, it was that early on in the process. Um, given you had an interest in politics from quite a young age, did you identify as a conservative? No, not at all. So my parents were very left-wing. I thought the word Tory was a term of offence. I'd never heard people call themselves a Tory. I was very left-wing at, you know, school, secondary school. And then I went to university and my eyes started to be opened to other views. But I also found the union and the Conservative Party at Cambridge very off-putting because everyone had incredibly kind of expensive clothes, kept talking about their parents' surnames, the land they owned. And they all had this kind of public school education that gives you this incredible ability to project your views as if you're Churchill. So that put me off. And had you gone to a comprehensive? Yes, I, I went to my local comp. I loved it. It was the best thing 
I believe very strongly if we can't give good comprehensive education in this country then the government is failing and so I want every kid to be able to go to their local comp and then go to the best university in the country but when I then went into the civil service again I was kind of opening my eyes and starting to think about why my politics was what it was and then the turning point for me was votes for prisoners and I was working for a conservative government as a neutral civil servant wasn't necessarily thinking I was a conservative and I suddenly realized that I completely agreed with the ministers and I thought all these kind of left-wing groups coming out saying you know you must give prisoners the vote was completely wrong you've harmed our community you can have a say again once you've been rehabilitated but you are being punished you have no right to have a say in a community you were happy to hurt and that for me was the start of a two-year journey of really exploring and questioning everything I thought I knew And what was amazing was that I knew my mum would... So I'd lost my dad by then. I knew my mum would be receptive to my conversations. But I still took quite a few friends for dinner to almost say, I'm coming out as a Conservative. And actually a lot of them said, well, actually, you know, as you've been talking about things, we've realised that your politics have been changing. It's interesting, when I got elected, a few people criticised the fact that I hadn't been born and bred a Conservative. But I think it really matters that I came to my politics myself and that I had to go through that journey and... And having come from a very left-wing household, for me to come out as a conservative, I had to be really sure that this was something I was doing. So yeah, it was it was a journey. Would your mother vote for you? She would, yes. Do you know what? I actually convinced her to vote conservative. She'll kill me for having said that on the <laughs> podcast. But I convinced her to vote conservative a few years ago, actually, as well. Every vote counts. Exactly that. In that seat, less so. It was a she lives in a safe Labour uh, majority. But yes. One day. Um, Now, you mentioned the time in the civil service. So you go into civil service comms. Did you ultimately decide you wanted to be a comms professional? Were you thinking about politics? And could you maybe just give us a taste of the different things you were doing? So when I graduated, it was 2009. So it was the height of the recession. And I think I applied for three jobs every single day since the summer before I graduated. And I graduated with two options, which was one, go and live in Hull on 30 grand a year, get given a car, you know, great opportunity of kind of lifestyle standards or in London on £50 a week, but that was also where my boyfriend and now husband was. So of course I followed love and went for the £50 a week in London. And it was the only job I was offered in London and it happened to be in comms, in PR. And it was the best thing that could ever have happened to me because A, I got the private sector experience that I then went back to again before I went into politics. But B, I got to work on, you know, how do you get people who are in gangs to get out of gangs? How do you get people who have got HIV but may not realise it to go and get tested? How do you get people to sign up to the organ donor register? And that then moved into kind of more controversial public consultations. When Stockport Hospital, there was all those murders taking place and the nurse was killing people. I went and lived in the hospital. My job was to advise the trust on how to, you know, manage a live murder crisis. And I realised that I loved working for government, but I wanted to be in, you know, in the room. So I went to the civil service, got a job at Ministry of Justice, loved it, helping victims recognise how to access services. And that was really great. Then I went to the MOD where I did the Scottish referendum. And again, I got to move into the kind of, A, that was quite political with a, you know, small p. But also I got to do some really fun things like, you know, it sounds awful to say fun, but nuclear leaks, big controversials, you know, issues in theatre, big problems. And then I got a phone call from the Foreign Office saying, look, we want you to come work on Iraq and Syria. And they talked me through the job and I kind of said, I don't think I've got the experience for what you're asking. And they said, you're an expert in behaviour change. That's exactly what we need. And then, thank God I said yes and took the job because I wasn't going to at first because um, I was having imposter moment. And it was the best thing I could have done. And 
I got to do everything from spend months at peace talks on Syria in Geneva at the UN, all the way through to working on super sneaky beaky stuff, all the way through to being in you know military bases in QA, Florida, Iraq, you name it. And I was so fortunate. It was the most amazing, amazing job. So a lot of time away from the UK in that period. Yes. Um, yeah. And was that when your kind of interest in foreign affairs really developed or? No, I think it came from my dad. You know, my, uh, we had a bust of Lenin at home growing up and my dad and my mum were both super interested in politics. You know, my dad had left school at 11 and, you know, worked on building double-decker buses and got involved in trade unions and that kind of politics. And then the troubles came along and he got really kind of interested in that. That then led him to want to go and explore politics, you know, travelling around the USSR and places like that. My mum, you know, she didn't plan to study German and got offered the course and suddenly was living in Germany for a year. We were always discussing international politics at the table and I didn't always understand it at that age. But the importance of how the international affects our domestic in a way that when I was elected, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, foreign policy is for those MPs who've got safe seats. The rest of us haven't got time of that luxury of a debate. Whereas I don't think anyone now would not recognise that the foreign policy and the domestic completely align. And for me, the foremost job of any government is to keep its people safe. But you can't keep your people safe if you don't have a steadfast economy. And it's also when the economy suffers that the most vulnerable are the ones who suffer the most. So those are the two core tangents for me in terms of why I'm a conservative, in terms of you know fiscal responsibility and then you know on foreign policy doing what we have to do and standing up for our responsibilities. So when did you decide you want to be a Tory MP? Because you went for a seat in 2017. Yes. So in 2016, I decided that I was going to apply to sit the big process and go and do all the interviews and all that kind of jazz. And then the exact moment that I decided to quit the civil service, because I wanted to be clean, I didn't want anyone to be able to say that I'd been political in the civil service, and the decision was on the referendum result. So on the day of the result of the referendum, people in the office, foreign office, knew that I had voted leave. And yes, I knew I was the minority and I wasn't having big arguments with people about it, but they knew that I quietly held my view. But on the day of the outcome, when we all found out what happened, there were at least two director generals who held meetings of all foreign office staff and their directorate where they said the words, we know the British people got it wrong. And the fury I felt, I mean, there were people in the corridors crying all over the place because they felt this was the end of British, you know, British foreign policy and influence. But the anger I felt that they felt it was appropriate to say the British people had got it wrong, that for me was, and I think I resigned within the week. And then I went and spent a month volunteering and doing things and le- in Lesbos helping uh, migrants land safely. On, and and did so you on. Um, have anyone personally say anything to you, you know, having known how they thought you had voted uh, when the result came through? No, I think all being diplomats, they were just very <laughs> quiet and kept to themselves about it. But, you know, I did express that I was frustrated that you know, a neutral civil servant felt it acceptable to essentially diminish the voting rights and say of the British people that that really stuck with me. And so that's when I quit. And then I sat my PAB, I think, three weeks before Christmas. And the letter landed on Christmas Eve to tell me whether or not I got on the candidates list. So that was a pretty stressful, do you open it before Christmas or not? And thankfully, I had passed. So in 2017, the seat you go for is a Labour stronghold. Is yeah. that right? So did, did you... I wonder if if you're going out knocking on doors, do you begin to just think that, you know, you might just pull off a miracle? No. Uh, I think it was something like a 33,000 majority. And whilst, you know, I'd like to think I can bring people with me, I'm not deluded. Uh, So, no, I was not... I think if I had to do something every day, I'd just somehow... 
No, but I also spent a lot of my time, most of my time I spent helping people who I thought we could get over the line. Yeah. Paul Scully, people like that. And so actually it was that great realising how strong a camaraderie you get during election. So I loved it. Then 2019 comes along and tell us about this, obviously, being the candidacy for the seat that you currently represent. Yep, so the selection was on a Friday and there was a slight controversy with the selection the night before. So I was in Broadland the night before in Norfolk and I came second. And the candidate who had won had made some disgusting comments that essentially if a woman gets into a bed with a man, it can never be rape, you know, these sorts of comments. They had been raised at the selection and yet the members still voted for him overwhelmingly and were happy to accept a candidate who had these views and who doubled down on them. And so my husband and I left that evening and went, right, this is not for us. This is not the community for us. This is not the association for us. And I come second, so it wasn't a problem. But as I was on my way to Rutland and Melton, I think about four hours before the selection, we were in the car. And I know exactly the roundabout because we drive past it every single weekend going home. I got a phone call from the party saying, turn around, congratulations, the board's met, party board's met, you are going to be the MP for Broadland. Because you came second, because the first person's had to drop out, the rules have now been amended. You know, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, it's a Conservative safety. And that was a massive turning point for me because I had to say, I'm really sorry, but I can't do that. And I said, I can't do it because it was the wrong association for me, but it's the wrong seat for me. And having spent the week in it, my husband and I both agreed a four hour drive each way would not work with our then 18 month old son. My husband didn't want to live there. It didn't feel right for us. Nothing felt right. And the other thing had been that in the summer before, so this is November time, in the August before, we had gone on holiday to Rutland and Melton because our best man's from there. And actually, my mum's entire family come from Rutland way back when. And my husband... And the producer for this podcast today, so it's a real... Fabulous area. And my husband had said to me while we're on holiday, this is my dream seat. This is where I would love you to be the MP. And I said, it's never going to happen. Alan Duncan isn't going anywhere, so on, so on, so on. So the fact that I'd been given the opportunity to interview for my dream seat that my family came from, and essentially I said no, and the response from the party wasn't the best. They weren't particularly amused. There was a lot of, you've said you won't be an MP at any cost, but you're not going to win tonight when you turn up at Rundle Melton. You will not win. The numbers are against you. We might not even let you in to interview. But we drove, and they let me in, and I won on the first ballot, thank goodness. And they are my people and I love my association and I love my 187 villages and three towns that I represent. But that was a real turning point for me in terms of going, so I'm either going to be the MP for Rutland and Melton or I will never be an MP. So why did they think you wouldn't win in Rutland? Or do you think they're they just trying say, to ban you? I think they were just, I think that they had a real problem in terms of, you know, a seat that had been won by someone who'd made revolting comments I was a female candidate I'd come second but I only got one more vote than the person who came third and the person who came third you know was from the seat only one vote behind me you know it made far more sense that person to do it but yes it was that kind of life-changing moment of okay I'm either going to give up my dreams as an MP or I'm going to go and win Rutland and Melton so you must felt quite satisfied after the result came. the elation was enormous only because it felt like my people like after I after I did my interview as I walked out people kind of putting their thumbs in the air and saying that they were behind me and they are my people and it is just when people say they love their constituencies they mean it but my son wakes up every morning and says when can we go home to Rutland like it is home it's yeah 
Now, so you, you've had the 2019 intake. I am. There's lots of you. It's much uh, larger. Not as many as some thought, but yes. <laughs> yes. Then from the 2017 at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were quite a lonely bunch. You founded the 109 WhatsApp group when oh, you I know. joined. Wasn't that a controversy? Um, we might want to talk to each was, other. Well, but also, wasn't there a problem with the number compared to the number of MPs? So Mark Wallace has taken responsibility for this, and I love Mark, so I'm not throwing him under a bus. But Con Home put out there were 109 new Conservative MPs when actually there was only 107 of us. But then I think once you take by-elections into account, there are now at least 109 of us because we had Louis so, and Jill join us. Right, so you were actually ahead of the curve. Yeah, well, obviously we just knew we were going to have so many more victories to come. <laughs> okay. um, in all seriousness, when you started that WhatsApp group, it did mean that you suddenly got a bit more attention, didn't it? It was you and Theo yeah. Clark and everyone was saying, oh, these... MPs want to be the voice of their intake. How did it you was find the most that? ridiculous. I mean, for me, it was just the most ridiculous concept because I'd come from a world where work was done on WhatsApp. You had all your groups and you spoke to everyone. It made perfect sense to me that you would put all the new intake into WhatsApp and we'd all talk to each other and help each other. And it has, particularly the pandemic. I don't think there's a single MP in the new intake that wasn't say it was our lifeline. You know, how do you deal with this piece of casework? Because there's no training to become an MP. You know, how did you deal with this? What kind of staff structure do you have? But I think the controversy was that there were elections as well when we first got elected. And some people saw this as a, this is a caucus first and foremost. And look, we did look out for each other. And there was, you know, people came before us as a caucus to pitch themselves. And I think as new people and new politicians finding our way, that was really useful because it meant we learned so much. But I think there was definitely some... I think every intake before that has done the same thing. They've had a WhatsApp group, they talk to each other, they've moved as a group. Look at Kemi's, you know, Kemi's leadership bid, most of that. A lot of them were 2017ers. So it was fascinating how it suddenly became that me and Theo were enemy number one and you know trying to control the back benches when actually I just wanted friends to you know get through this together with. How did you find being in Parliament? I mean, obviously that was one taste of it initially. Yeah. So the first, I mean, the first four months were just a whirlwind of just kind of, you know, oh my God, I don't have a single member of my staff. I don't have a team. I don't know what I'm doing. I've got all these millions of invitations. What are these drop-ins where I'm expected just to pose with a board? I mean, what is this? And you were just trying to find your way. So it was a real whirlwind. And then that kind of immediate stop with COVID. And it's really difficult because... People always joke that MPs spend their lives trying to become MPs, and then once they get to Parliament, they spend every moment trying to get out of it and get back home. I think a lot of us in the new intake love being home in our constituencies, and we love the constituency work we do, and we're really proud of it. But it's fascinating meeting MPs around the world and realising that no other MP in the world is expected to do the national legislation and essentially work, in essence, like a social worker. You know, whether it's someone's being domestically abused, get them out of their home, someone's house is mouldy, you need to sort that out and help them. Someone's mum has dropped their kid off with their best friend's mum for six months and someone needs to step in and that seems to be you as the MP through to, you know, I can't get the surgery I need. No other MPs do that sort of dual rolling and it is a real challenge. And the thing about being an MP for me is I don't think anything can prepare you for it and I don't think you can understand it. I love being able to campaign and fight and change things, whether it's the silent victories no one ever hears about in your constituency or whether it's, you know, the big things, you know, changing China policy or changing the rules around partners in bed, around, at beds during giving birth. But I can't say I enjoy the job. And that's the challenge for me because there is so much hatred. 
there is so much division there is so much everything you do being watched from every single moment you know even down to little things like i want to walk into apartment without a full face of makeup on and then there's photographers taking photos of me all the way through to death threats and having a panic alarm in every single room in my house and making sure that there's not a single picture of my children on the internet to protect them it's not an enjoyable job it is tough and difficult and abusive but you get to change things and that is the most amazing privilege and on that division, I mean, some of it comes internally too, doesn't it? <laughs> How can you have more enemies sometimes on your own side, it feels, than you do on the others? But uh, maybe that's because we're more effective politicians, so we're yeah, tough on each other. That's yeah. the one. Because I was going to mention, uh, before we talk about foreign affairs, mm. the pork pie plot. Oh, yes. Because this links to 2019 and And obviously, this was uh, around the time where there are there's deep unhappiness across the party yeah. with Boris Johnson. He was not out yet, but it felt as though he was in a, you know... A vulnerable position. Yeah. And now, of course, he, he is out and, as of this weekend, is staying out. So, I, I, can you tell us about the pork pie plot? I can. So, look, in my maiden speech, I said that you were going to hear me speak a lot about the pork pie, and I have delivered on my promise. But you hit the nail on the head in terms of it was a time of deep unhappiness with the party. It was in January. It was at the height of kind of party gate when we were really seeing everything that happened. And... I'm not apologetic for the fact that I met with a group of colleagues in my office to discuss whether or not the Prime Minister should continue in his place. There is no other authority or group that has the ability to be able to do that. It wasn't the only meeting. There were other meetings in other offices, but we moved around. The difference with the pork pie plot was that the whips decided to post a member of their staff outside my office, count us all in, and we all saw them as we came in, but we weren't, what we're going to do, turn around and not meet. And then they briefed it to the media and said that there was this great plot to bring down the Prime Minister. And it's not representative of the conversation that took place. And it's frustrating because the reason the whips briefed it out was because they were scared that we were going to be effective and that we might bring down the Prime Minister. And so that's why they decided to brief it out and to go so hard on us. But what I think is an interesting reflection is that there were a number of people in the room, but there were only two women. And yet the briefings went out against the two women in the room, despite the fact that neither of us was chairing the meeting. And the briefings were really nasty. You know, one of them that she was somehow... So you and Deanna Davidson. Yeah. yeah. So some way that her love life was not acceptable and that I was a bad mother. And when your own party thinks it's acceptable to brief out to the media that you're a bad mother, when it is hard enough struggling, you know, managing the two jobs. And the briefing was because I took my daughter to Ukraine. I was therefore a bad mother. So I think the pork pie plot was a really big learning lesson for a lot of us. But do I regret the fact that we felt that we as MPs had a responsibility to sit and meet and discuss the situation? No, because that's our duty. I just wish the whips hadn't chosen to essentially try and make me enemy number one and brief it out. You know, it felt, I remember at the time as though they were basically just trying to name and shame a few people so as to put others off going anywhere near it and so forth, which I imagine particularly for two members of the 2019 Mm. intake. So you get that is suddenly you're feeling probably more attention, media attention than you would normally receive. Yeah, look, you and know, it's... I was sat in the airport waiting to fly to Ukraine the next morning and the front page of every single newspaper was Port Pie Plot. Um, what was quite good is that when I said to journalists about the reality of what was going on, they quickly reflected the fact that this wasn't my plot and I wasn't leading a plot. And I think that's because they knew that I'm not someone that runs around giving, you know, anonymous conservative MP says. And so they were quite decent to me. But it was created by the whips and that, that was their choice. But they did 
aim to scare us off. And look, it was an isolating time for me. It was very difficult, but at the same time, I'm not going to regret doing you know, what my duty was. And I presume it didn't encourage you to support Boris Johnson. No. Uh, <laughs> and also, because I was, well, yeah, I know. How bizarre that someone who thinks it's okay to brief out that I'm a bad mum. But the weird thing was also they didn't even reach out to me. So they decided that I was too far gone to even bother reaching out, whereas everyone else in the room got demanded to come and see the Prime Minister. And they all had to go and see him. And they all told him some hard truths that he had to hear. But look, I've always, I've always said to the Prime Minister, I will tell you to your face anything I'm thinking or worried about, always politely. But I think the difficulty with Boris is that people don't realise that when you have believed in someone, when you have stood behind them, in difficult times, and bear in mind we'd already had Owen Paterson by this point, um, we'd already had Afghanistan, which mattered to some of us greatly, we'd already had all sorts of issues. If you've believed in someone, when you feel they betray you and they're not looking out for you and they've lied to you, that's enormously difficult. And I think it's very tough that this narrative at the moment in the media about regicidal MPs, when actually there is a responsibility with leadership, and I think all of us have tried to be quite upfront and open, but that, but, you know, when you feel that you've been betrayed, that's, you know, that matters as well. And we also have a duty to represent our constituents. We're obviously talking, just as there's about to be a third Tory leader this year, do you think, I mean, on the subject, I mean, I've read about regicidal MPs, so, we, so that was good. <laughs> but, you know, third leader mm. in its face of a year does suggest the party is developing a taste for it. Now, it can also be down to also obviously factors of how people are treated. But do you think the party needs to really try and discipline itself when it comes to the new leader and how, and how they approach it? Because it can often feel as though there's obviously lots of tricky trade-offs in politics, yeah. but if you're going to have, you know, one faction kicking off about each of them you're never going to get anything done so i think from the inside the opposite is true in that we we don't want this we hate the division we hate the blue on blue we hate not pulling together as one unity is what we all strive for and it's because we all believe in a conservative future and so going through the january to the june was so painful for us all it was such a painful period and anyone who rebels in it is not somebody i would want to you know associate myself with and most of us just found it a really difficult, horrible time. But the problem is, Boris chose to go because there were too many controversies time after time again where his ministers could not believe that what they were being told was accurate and true. And unfortunately, for too many of us, that was our experience of that regime. With Liz, it wasn't that MPs didn't pull behind her. It was the fact that, unfortunately, at a time of global insecurity, when people are genuinely scared, she chose to not do what we needed to do, which was people needed to see fiscal responsibility, pragmatism, compassion, someone who understood what they were going through. And instead of announcing 30 billion of tax cuts that she promised us as MPs, she announced 120 billion. She didn't do an OBR. And the whole approach was too arrogant. And that's the problem is that when the country is scared, you have to bring them with you and you have to bring your MPs with you. And I think I understand that some of those topics hadn't even been briefed to cabinet when they were announced. Unfortunately, what happened with Liz is what none of us wanted. You know, I want, although I didn't agree with her and I didn't back her, I wanted her to succeed, not least because we needed it for our constituents and our mortgages and everything else. But her decisions were not ones that would have going to bring the party or the country with us, particularly at this difficult time. So I think we are all so desperate. I think that's why you've seen such unity around Rishi, is people want to see us move forward as one. Now, I want to talk about your role, because you have a new role, and you've spoken earlier in the podcast about your interest in foreign affairs, how that developed, obviously, 
first for your father, but then through some of your work. And you also had a role in the China Research Group. Yeah. And then when Tom Tegenhart went into government, a vacancy opened on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and you decided to go for it. It's obviously a very competitive vacancy. Lots of people are very interested in it. What were the conversations around it when you decided to go for it? So I, I really took my time to decide. I think I was the third person to Claire of the four that stood. And... I really tried to think about was this the right thing to do and was I in the right place to have to offer the right kind of leadership of the committee and I almost didn't mainly because I didn't want naysayers to kind of say oh look you know but I suddenly realised you don't make decisions based on what the naysayers might say and so I started speaking to colleagues and saying you know this is what I think I can put forward I want to completely change how we run select committees so it's not always looking backwards but also offering proactive policy solutions so we don't have them But also when we do these reports that take us sometimes six months, let's haul in the ministers a year after when they supposedly introduced our recommendations and see if they actually have. And ultimately I came into politics because I wanted to break down essentially the fact that the state often doesn't work because the bureaucracy becomes so big that it forgets that its reason to exist is to help people. And I saw that in the civil service time after time after time. And in the civil service, I was that person who challenged it and said, well, that's not actually going to help people. That's not going to make it easier for people to live their lives or make their decisions they want. So I thought if I can do that in civil service, imagine what I could do in politics. And so I wanted to bring that kind of skill set to the role, but also the fact that I came into politics also because of the national security angle and feeling we needed more people focused on that. And so ultimately I thought... If I don't win, I have fought for the thing I love and I have fought for the policies I want to make a difference on and I'll be able to contribute to the conversation. And then I was blown away by the support across the House. People have been so kind and it was amazing to get such strong Conservative support as well. It meant a lot. And did you have any of your older, perhaps is the wrong word, but you know, longer serving colleagues suggest this wasn't one for a 2019er? I think my age was brought up quite a lot, indeed, yes. And I I am the youngest ever chair, and I am the first woman, and I thought it was disappointing. There were quite a lot of jabs about my my sex and the idea that uh, people only supported me because I might be a woman, or that I somehow was not experienced in foreign policy despite having spent the last decade working in counter-terrorism and countering hostile states. So yeah, so but ultimately, I fought a clean fight, and all that mattered to me was that I took the time to speak to colleagues and say that this is, you know, this is what I want to do. This is my vision. I really hope I can bring you on board, and it meant so much that people were so keen to support me. So I was very grateful. And in your role, what what are your priorities going to be? And as you said earlier on the podcast, we have a situation where. I think foreign policy has never felt so close in terms of you know Ukraine, China and threats. So what is it that you want to do? So I think if I could wave a magic wand and kind of change one thing in our entire country, it'd be our resilience. So over the last 20 years, quite rightly, we have focused on the threat from terrorists who behave like states. You know, look at Daesh, look at Al-Shabaab, there's all these different groups that have been attempting to build caliphates and states. And to some extent, they achieved it. You know, Daesh had a taxation system, you know, all sorts of different things. And so we were right to do that. But what we didn't do over the last 20 years is look at hostile states. And the challenge we now face is hostile states who behave like terrorists. And that's going to be the threat at least between now and 2050. And the big problem with that is that while we've been looking at hostile states, you can't win or achieve anything in diplomacy without hope. But we haven't planned to fail. And that's the big problem. So now our system is not resilient. And when I mean our system, I mean you know our education system. You know, Lots has been talked about Confucius Institutes, which I've got the government to agree that they could ban through to our economic system, through to our information system, our cultural systems, 
WIs across the country could be being infiltrated, you never know. All the way through to kind of the more mainstream things people expect in the military. We need to build up our resilience across that entire system. But we also have to look at, particularly on hostile states, how we protect ourselves and what we do proactively. We also have to look at how we invest in our multilaterals and bilaterals because we haven't and the whole problem is that if you look at all this outrage about well, why is China on the committee for this and why is Russia able to veto this it's because we haven't invested in our multilaterals and the third thing we haven't done is really worked out how we prevent atrocities and as a UN Security Council member we have responsibilities but also that's how we bring stability and reduce the threats to us so I think for me resilience is the big one but then with those kind of three themes underneath and Midway through recording this, we have learned that Rishi Sunak is definitely the Prime Minister. We have indeed, yeah. Um, so I wondered, when it comes to Rishi Sunak's foreign policy priorities, uh, what do you want to see? Because I think during the summer campaign, he was accused of being weaker on China than there's trust. Yeah. Um, and also, I think in the past, someone said, perhaps because he's coming from that treasury background when it comes to help to Ukraine he's also thinking about the financial situation here and that could mean a, a slightly different approach look I think I think those it's slightly unfair some of those attacks because it's his job as chancellor to take into account the impact on the treasury of the things we do from my you know experience of working with him and talking to him over the summer and when I backed him um, to be leader he was very considered about foreign policy but he was also very focused on what impacts on British people so things like state hostage taking we're currently doing an inquiry on that I know he's got a real interest in it I don't think we're going to see him back away from our international responsibilities I think who he picks as foreign secretary will be very interesting because I think I expect that he'll probably give them a lot of leeway to shape their own kind of vision so I think it'll be really interesting to see where he goes with that but I think he will take the right line on China but he will also recognise that we cannot be running around screaming about this our constituents are not ready for us to go into another war of some sort with China in terms of what they've seen with Ukraine and energy so you know, if we suddenly tell our constituents they can't get their um, Halloween costumes for their children off Amazon they're not going to thank us for it they can't have their phones because there's child labour in it or whatever it is so I think Rishi will walk a pragmatic line, but I think he will be tough. And if not, I'll be there to nudge him along. And second last question, just one on defence spending. There's obviously been a big push for an increase in defence spending. Yeah. It was a pledge that Liz Truss made uh, that won her quite a lot of support. Ben Wallace, James Huffey have, have suggested they might quit government if, if that wasn't in place. But now we have a different prime minister who never made that pledge, I think partly because of the tricky financial situation. Do you think Rishi Sunak needs to make it? So I do think it's an important pledge because where we lead on the world stage, people do follow us. Ben has actually said that he thinks we should get to 2.6% by 2025. I hope we can do that. I am not one of those people that just says this is the target and therefore that's what we have to reach. For me, it's more nuanced. So if you look at the AUKUS agreement, it's that second strand of work that's really exciting. You know, AI, quantum, underwater, you know, weapon systems, all the new ways in which we're going to have to fight wars and defend ourselves. That's what we need to be investing in. If that requires us to go to 3%, then we should go to 3%. But if it requires us to only go to 2.8%, I'm happy as long as we're investing in the right capabilities. But if someone could sort out defence procurement, I'd be a hell of a lot happier than any kind of random target. Okay, so you'll wait to see what Rishi Sunak says. I will, yeah. And then the final question is one that we ask everyone, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? So yeah, um, it's a tough one to struggle with, but I think it probably comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, don't take Rutland and Melton. You know, that it would be the greatest mistake of my life to go forward for interview for it. And for that, I have the people of Rutland and Melton to thank. So I'm very grateful. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me.